Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's international tax practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about the current state of the OECD project on the taxation of the digital economy, aka BEPS 2.0, and its interaction with recent international tax reform proposals in the U.S. I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Michael Plougen and Marcus Hayland. Michael is a principal with me in KPMG's international tax practice. Prior to joining KPMG, Michael served as an advisor at the OECD on the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting, or BEPS, project, and before that, as an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. Marcus is a managing director in KPMG's Economic Valuation Services practice. He has recently rejoined KPMG after serving as an advisor at the OECD on BEPS 2.0. Michael and Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Good to be here. Thank you. Michael, let's start with some background. You were there at the OECD during the early stages of BEPS in 2013. What was BEPS intended to accomplish? Well, BEPS actually evolved in what it was trying to accomplish. And I think that partially planted the seeds for what we see in BEPS 2.0. So a number of countries came in at the beginning of BEPS and they had this idea that they wanted to change the deal between source and residence countries to give source countries greater taxing rights. And for a lot of different reasons, that mostly evolved into going after so-called stateless income, income that's not taxed anywhere. It's easier to agree on trying to grow the revenue pie internationally than to redo how you're dividing the pie. But action one on the tax challenges of the digital economy did at least raise some suggestions about how source or market countries might increase their tax take with respect to certain business models. And those issues were really important, especially to certain EU countries. And the Action One work did not reach consensus on many of those key issues in the original BEPS project. There was consensus under the Action One report on how to apply consumption taxes to B2C digital services, and they developed separate guidelines in that regard. And from a tax administration point of view, those guidelines have been a big success, but they didn't solve the political problem for a lot of governments. Because the political problem is that voters are paying high income taxes and consumption taxes, and the voters tend to view foreign multinationals and particularly digital companies as not paying their fair share of taxes. So for the governments to come back and say, well, we have a solution, and it's for you, the voters, to pay more consumption tax, that didn't really fix things. Um, so, so you have this ongoing political issue focused on the digital economy. And you also had lingering source versus residence concerns that weren't addressed in the original BEPS project. And I think those were really the, the fundamental driving forces behind BEPS 2.0. Are you one of those people that chafe at the term BEPS 2.0? <laughs> no, it, it doesn't hurt my feelings that people think that BEPS 1.0 wasn't good enough. I actually think calling it BEPS 2.0 is pretty appropriate, right? The original BEPS project did a lot, but as I mentioned, there, there were a number of fundamental issues that the countries had that the BEPS project just intentionally did not resolve. So it's not surprising to me that the governments are back at the table wrestling with those issues. And clearly BEPS 2.0 is better than the official title, which is tax challenges arising from digitalization. 
So BEPS Action One report addressed, quote, the tax challenges arising from digitalization. Marcus, let's talk about these challenges. What makes the digital economy so unique? And how has that led to a dramatic rethink of certain facets of our current international tax system? So I think the tax challenges of the digital economy has certainly evolved over time and certainly since Action 1. As it stands now under that umbrella of tax challenge of the digital economy, there's Pillar 1 and there's Pillar 2. Pillar 1 and specifically Amount A of Pillar 1 is the aspect of the work that's most sort of directly focused on the tax challenges of the digital economy. And as we look at that Pillar 1 and Amount A, it was in March 2018 that the OECD released their interim report that dealt with exactly this question that you're asking. It was in that report that a few common characteristics of digitalized businesses that perhaps put pressure on the international tax rules, particularly the rules for permanent establishment and transfer pricing. And those characteristics were, you know, first was this concept of scale without mass. Second, there was a characteristic of heavy reliance on intangible assets. Uh, And then third, there was a concept of importance of data and user participation. The report concluded that there was general agreement from the countries around the table as to the existence of those characteristics, but diverging views amongst countries as to the relevance of those characteristics to the international tax rules themselves. Some countries viewed these characteristics as being limited to very narrowly defined so-called digital business models. The view of the U.S. has been for some time all the way back to action one, that the digital economy is a fiction. And instead, what there really is, is there's a general economy that is digitalizing. That fundamental issue, which is what is the challenge or problem that we're trying to solve, which again, goes all the way back to the first BEPS project and arguably before that, continues today. And many stakeholders that have participated in the OECD work, including in responding to the OECD public consultations, have recognized this issue. And a common response from stakeholders was, we see a lot of technical rules here, but there's no obvious principles that are guiding this work. And as we talk later in the podcast on what the recent proposal from Treasury, again, we're seeing a reframing of the challenge at hand. So I'm afraid the answer to your question, Gary, is that there's diverging views around the table as to exactly what the challenge at hand is. And unfortunately, I don't expect that to change. And I assume there are diverging views of how to address the challenge as well. So the OECD has described a two-pillar solution to address the digital economy. You referenced Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Could you explain what Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are in broad strokes and how they would address the challenges that you've described? Yes. So as you said, there's Pillar 1, which deals with nexus and profit allocation. And then there's Pillar 2, which deals with it's a global minimum tax. Within Pillar 1, there's broadly three components. There's an amount A, there's an amount B, and then there's an attack certainty component. It's really amount A, as I said, that this is the component of the overall work plan that deals most directly with the view that some countries have as to the tax challenges of the digital economy. It's amount A that provides a new taxing right for market jurisdictions. It's computed on an entirely formulaic basis, and effectively what amount A is doing is reallocating some portion of an M&E's residual profit to market jurisdictions, the jurisdictions that it operates in, based on its consolidated financial accounts. So under this amount A, nexus in a jurisdiction 
is no longer limited to physical presence. Instead, just simply having a sufficient level of revenue in that jurisdiction would be enough to establish nexus and be required to pay amount A in that jurisdiction. It's also very clear that amount A is designed as an overlay to the existing transfer pricing rules. So it goes beyond the arm's length principle. The biggest question on amount A has always been scope. As it's set out in the blueprint that was released in the fall of last year, the scope of amount A is limited to certain types of activities by reference to certain types of multinationals by reference to the activities that are performed. There's two types of activities that are referenced. There's this automated digital services or ADS, and then there's consumer facing businesses or CFB. So it's quite a qualitative and subjective scope. And then there was a number of sectoral exclusions. So that's amount A. Amount B is unlike amount A, amount B applies to all businesses and it seeks to establish a fixed return for certain baseline distribution activities. Unlike amount A, amount B is explicitly intended to be consistent with the arm's length principle. Amount B is really about simplification and enhanced tax certainty. And then the third component within pillar one is this uh, tax certainty element. This is seeking to establish processes to improve overall tax certainty through dispute prevention and resolution mechanisms, including potentially what is always discussed in this space, which is not optional dispute prevention mechanisms. So that's pillar one. And then on the pillar two side of the house, this is not too connected really to pillar one. So pillar two is a very different policy objective. Pillar two is designed to ensure that really all internationally operating multinationals pay a minimum level of tax, regardless of where they are headquartered or the jurisdictions they operate in. It does this through a series of interlocking rules that the principal rule is the income inclusion rule. There's then a backstop for the undertax payment rule. The IIR, as I mentioned, that's really the main rule that applies at the level of the parent and in some respects is similar to CFC rules, but it's much broader in how it applies. I think the two most important policy calls on pillar two was first the level of blending. So when we say minimum tax, do we mean a minimum level of tax paid the global level or do we mean a minimum level of tax paid on a jurisdictional basis? That was a key policy call. And then the second key policy call is, what is the extent of the carve-out for substance? Where we stand now is, if you look at the blueprint, you can kind of see there's a few different policy objectives that come through. I mean, one policy objective is that Pillar 2 is really about this concept of remaining BEPS risk. And if you think the concept is the policy is about remaining BEPS risk, then arguably global blending might be appropriate, but you definitely think there needs to be recognition of substance in the jurisdiction. However, the other policy objective in Pillar 2 that some countries subscribe to is it's really not about remaining BEPS risk. Really what it's about is a race to the bottom in tax competition. If that's your view, then jurisdictional blending is the way to go, and there really shouldn't be any carve-outs at all. If one looks at the blueprint, I think you can tell that it's really the race to the bottom and tax competition crowd that seems to be winning that debate because the level of blending is jurisdictional and the carve out is limited to routine return for payroll and tangible assets. So a lot of different elements to Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, but hopefully that provides you a short overview of the two. That's fantastic. And I think we'll come back to the importance of the race to the bottom later. So where is the OECD in the process of finishing its program of work? 
As we look to the calendar ahead, I think there's three key milestones coming up here in the next few months. The first is there's an inclusive framework meeting at the end of June, early July. It's at that meeting where the goal is to reach a consensus agreement on at least the key aspects of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So I think that is a key milestone in the work. The plan would then be that that agreement would be endorsed by G20 finance ministers in, I think it's the second week of July, and then ultimately G20 leaders at their meeting in October. In recent days, we've heard some level of hedging as to how much can practically be agreed at the inclusive framework meeting at the end of June. So it's likely that the agreement in June will be perhaps a higher level and more principle-based with more follow-on work and perhaps a more robust agreement prepared for G20 leaders at their meeting in October. But I think those are really the three key milestones to keep an eye on as we move forward. While the OECD's work has been front and center in the news recently, I suspect that many of our listeners could benefit from some additional background on the OECD itself. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development is an intergovernmental economic organization whose precursor was actually initially established in 1948 to administer the Marshall Plan. The OECD has no power to pass laws, but it should be clear from this episode has significant influence in directing economic policy and setting standards. The OECD is comprised of 37 member countries, which collectively represent about half of the world's GDP. Member countries include the U.S., Canada, Japan, and the nations of Europe, but not China or Russia. It should be noted, however, the work on BEPS 2.0 is occurring at the OECD within the so-called inclusive framework which consists of a broader contingent of nearly 140 countries whose members participate on an equal footing, meaning that theoretically any member of the inclusive framework can block consensus by objecting. The operating budget of the OECD is funded through donations from its members, and the U.S. by far is the OECD's greatest contributor. In 2019, over 20% of the OECD's operating budget was funded by the U.S. Second place was Japan at less than 10%. So on the one hand, as its greatest patron and as its largest economy, the U.S. has an outsized influence on the OECD. On the other The U.S. being endowed with a single voice is effectively outnumbered by the Europeans 20 to 1. Michael, you've been on both sides of the fence here. Could you describe the U.S.'s relationship with the OECD generally and particularly during BEPS? Yes, I think there's a lot packed into that question. So the first thing is the OECD doesn't really work by voting. So the concept of voting power doesn't really apply. What the OECD does is it operates through consensus. So if any member objects, then the recommendation or the action or whatever they're doing is not approved. And so in practice, there's a lot of pressure for countries not to object and not to bring up things that will be objected to. And so instead of controversial things getting formally killed, they tend to get deferred or ignored. But you also make the important point that the U.S. does not just get to impose its will at the OECD. And in fact, I think it's pretty clear that as the U.S.'s share of the global economy has declined, its influence at the OECD has diminished somewhat. And I think that's reflected a little bit in the BEPS 1.0 project. Very often in BEPS 1.0, the U.S. was not really driving the bus, but was playing defense. But as you say, the U.S. is still the largest member and the largest contributor, so it does have a lot of influence at the OECD. 
One other issue I think is important to understand is that the OECD doesn't by itself set the global tax agenda, at least at the political level. That's done at the G20 by the presidents and prime ministers and finance ministers, as well as the central bank governors. And the individuals, the actual people who meet at the OECD tend to be the tax bureaucrats in their respective countries. And they report to the finance ministers who meet at the G20. So the people at the G20 are literally the boss of the people at the OECD. And what that means is that the concerns of the large emerging economies like China, India, and Brazil, who are in the G20, are becoming more and more important in driving the global tax agenda. And we see some of that in the elements of BEPS 2.0. That leads us to, as you point out, BEPS 2.0. How would you describe the U.S.'s posture towards BEPS 2.0 during the Trump administration? I think under the Trump administration, the tax people at Treasury were sincerely doing their best to get to a deal. But there were a number of political obstacles, including the U.S. insistence that Pillar 1 not ring-fence digital companies, which tend to be predominantly U.S. companies. And that's not just a Trump administration position. That was the Obama administration position. It's also the Biden administration position that the deal not ring-fence digital companies. But I think a central issue here is that the U.S. has traditionally engaged at the OECD at the technical level, the tax people at Treasury. And they tend to be bureaucrats rather than the politicians. And they came up with a compromise position on the scope of Pillar 1 that's set out in the Pillar 1 blueprint that Marcus talked about. But toward the end of 2019, Secretary Mnuchin apparently came to the conclusion that that solution was not going to work politically in the U.S. and said that if the deal went forward, it had to be on a safe harbor or effectively optional basis. And concluding that the deal wasn't going to work in the U.S. was probably not a crazy conclusion, but other countries really couldn't agree to having an optional tax regime. So we ended up with a bit of a stalemate in the work during 2020. And has anything changed under the new administration? Yeah, I think a lot has changed under this administration. For one thing, the Biden administration has been engaged at a political level on the OECD negotiations from the very start. And that's rare for the U.S. So that's not a knock on the prior administration at all. It's just that the level engagement now is much higher than it usually is. So the negotiations at the OECD have been an important topic for Secretary Yellen since her confirmation hearing. And she continues to stress in her public comments the importance of reaching a deal. For another thing, getting a deal at the OECD, especially on Pillar 2, actually is totally aligned with what the administration wants to do legislatively domestically. Right? It's no longer the U.S. just playing defense here. They actually want something out of these negotiations. Uh, so they want to make changes to guilty. They recognize that those changes will be a lot easier if other countries implement similar measures under Pillar 2. So going back to Marcus's comments, it's pretty clear that the U.S. is in the stop the race to the bottom camp. But the Biden administration also realizes that a deal on Pillar 2 requires a deal on Pillar 1. And so they're very engaged in trying to get that deal on Pillar 1 as well. So, in fact, earlier this month, the Biden administration outlined to the OECD a new proposal related to Pillar 1. Marcus, what has the U.S. proposed? Yeah, so the document that has been viewed as the U.S. proposal on Pillar 1, I mean, I guess stepping back a little bit, that was a proposal that U.S. Treasury made to the steering group of the Inclusive Framework. It's not a document that has been officially released, but it's a document that, like many other OECD documents in the past, has widely leaked. And it now seems to be in the hands of just about everyone in the tax community. And in fact, it's available to everyone in the world through a Google search. So, you know, I think 
first observation is the document itself, it covers both pillar one and pillar two, and it actually starts with pillar two, which I think underlines the point that Micah was just making, just signaling the significance of pillar two to the United States, noting the domestic policy ambition the U.S. has. But focusing on pillar one and your question and what this new proposal, the most fundamental aspect of the proposal is that it removes the activity test, which is what I mentioned for ADS and CFB, related to the scope of taxpayers that would come in under this amount A. Instead, the proposal defines the taxpayers that would be in scope for amount A by reference to two quantitative thresholds. One is revenue, and then the second is profit margin. The exact thresholds haven't been filled in yet, but we're hearing somewhere between 10 to 20 billion potentially on the revenue side, and maybe somewhere in the 10 to 15% range on margin. That's pure speculation, but there's reports out there along those lines. Presumably, both those numbers would be computed by reference to consolidated financial accounts, which was very much the direction of travel in the blueprint. Importantly, the rest of the mechanics in the amount A design, which is the revenue sourcing rules, the treatment of losses, profit allocation, elimination of double tax, and so on, those mechanics would generally follow the blueprint. So the main change here in the proposal is a change to the scope of taxpayers that would be subject to amount A. The intention of the proposal is to set these two thresholds at a level that would result in no more than 100 multinationals coming within scope. Now, that's much less than the number of multinationals that would have been subject to amount A as per the blueprint. There's a number of questions that remain open at this point. I think two of them in particular are, will there be sectoral exclusion and financial services and extractives certainly come to mind? And then the other piece is, what about segmentation? Very much the intent of the proposal is to minimize the intent for segmentation, but it perhaps seems unavoidable at some level. The principle that this proposal in, in the new scope is to focus only on the largest and most profitable companies consistent with popular concerns is the phrase that's used. The proposal also posits that it's these small number of very large and profitable companies that benefit most from globalization because they're highly profitable, are able to benefit from perhaps shifting IP around, and are also perhaps best equipped to deal with the compliance obligations that a pillar one would entail. So if you go back to where we started and discussion on the principle and referenced scale without mass and heavy reliance on intangible property and the importance of data and user participation, it would seem that those principles have mostly been left behind at this point. And instead, we're now focused on a very few number of large and highly profitable companies. I think overall, the reaction for the proposal has been generally positive. And I do personally think that this proposal could help unlock the negotiation. The U.S. has shown some caution with Pillar 1 in the past due to the fact that many of the companies that would be targeted by Pillar 1 would be U.S. multinationals. So what does the U.S. have to gain here? Why are they playing ball on Pillar 1? The U.S.'s primary objective on the Pillar 1 side is and likely has always been to remove the discriminatory digital services taxes. So that is the primary deliverable from a U.S. standpoint on Pillar 1. But there's also, I think, a subtler point, which is Pillar 1, and I think in Amount A in particular, there's a component of just restoring the overall stability to the international tax system. And I think Amount A done right can potentially achieve that by 
ensuring a more equitable allocation of taxing rights across jurisdictions. So I think that's another important aspect, just the stability point on Pillar 1. The other point, and this has been alluded to, it's also the case that Pillar 1 is politically linked with Pillar 2. A number of countries have said they're not prepared to move forward with Pillar 2 without Pillar 1. And so I think there's clearly a political link with the U.S.'s main objective for the work overall, maybe in securing a strong minimum tax, which is Pillar 2, but perhaps playing ball in Pillar 1 is necessary in order to achieve that. So those are kind of the overall objectives from a U.S. standpoint. On our last episode of the podcast, we talked at some length about Biden's Made in America tax plan. I want to revisit some of that in light of Pillar 2. Michael, what in the Biden tax plan is consistent with Pillar 2, inconsistent with Pillar 2, or interacts in some meaningful way with Pillar 2? Yeah, I think the two biggest areas of interaction are the proposed changes to guilty and to the beat. So the Biden administration has proposed making guilty country by country, which would bring it more closely in line with the minimum tax under Pillar 2, as Marcus was saying. That's proposed to be done on a country by country or jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. The administration has also proposed repealing the beat and replacing it with the shield, which appears to be more closely aligned with the undertaxed payments rule in Pillar 2. On the other hand, the administration also has proposed to get rid of the deemed return on QBI, and that would be inconsistent with the Pillar 2 blueprint, which contains a carve-out, as Marcus was saying, for a deemed return on employee compensation expense and tangible asset depreciation expense. But I think the thing that might raise a bigger issue for getting to a deal is that the Biden administration is proposing to raise the guilty rate to 21%, and that's significantly higher than the discussions of a minimum rate in Pillar 2, which have generally been in the you know 10 to 12.5% range. So the administration is pushing for again, a significantly higher rate in the Pillar 2 negotiations. And it's unclear at this stage how other countries are going to react, though, as you might expect, Ireland has recently come out strongly against a rate above 12.5%. Not coincidentally. (laughs) You had just mentioned that Biden has proposed to repeal the beat and replace it with the shield. What do we know about the shield and uh, how similar to the undertax payments rule do you think this would be? Well, we don't have a whole lot of detail. So we know that it would deny deductions in the U.S. by reference to payments made to related parties that are subject to a low effective tax rate. And that rate would be set by the deal on Pillar 2. But until there's a deal on Pillar 2, it would be set by reference to the guilty rate, which again, it has been proposed to be raised to 21%. The other key element that we know about the shield is that it would be turned off for multinationals that are resident in a jurisdiction that has adopted the agreed Pillar 2 minimum tax. And so broadly speaking, those elements are consistent with the the UTPR based on the blueprint. But given that there's not a whole lot of detail there, there could be significant differences between the UTPR and the shield. So for example, the, the UTPR calculates the effective tax rate by reference to financial accounting income. And it's not clear whether the shield would have that same basis or whether it would use U.S. tax accounting principles, which is much more generally what the U.S. Congress tends to do. The UTPR would only deny deductions to the extent needed to top up the low tax entity to the minimum rates. It's not a cliff effect. And again, it's not clear whether the shield would operate that way as well, or whether it would just say, if you don't meet the minimum rate, we're going to deny the full deduction. Perhaps most significantly, the UTPR does not just look to the entity receiving the payment to determine whether the payment is low taxed. And instead, it looks at whether there are any low tax entities anywhere in the group. And the description of the shield just doesn't get into that level of detail. It's possible 
right, that the shield will operate like the UTPR, but it seems more likely that we may see greater reliance on existing U.S. tax concepts. And how does the OECD's implementation of BEPS 2.0 affect the implementation of Tax Reform 2.0 and vice versa? I think it's easier to see the interaction between Pillar 2 and what the Biden administration is proposing. So clearly, U.S. proposals on guilty and possibly the beat are going to influence the negotiations on Pillar 2. So the rate that is set in the U.S. is going to influence potentially the rate that gets agreed to at the multilateral level. At the same time, I think the negotiations at the OECD might influence how high Congress is willing to go on the guilty rate. So if the rest of the world agrees on 12.5%, is Congress really going to be okay imposing guilty at 21%? It seems more likely to me that there will be a deal at the OECD if those rates get a bit closer together. On Pillar 1, the administration has not proposed legislation that would move the U.S in the direction of Pillar 1. And then that's not surprising because there really are fundamental questions still open about where Pillar 1 is headed. And so it seems like that one is going to require a bit more time, right? A better sense of where the OECD negotiations are headed. And then we'll have the question of once there's an agreement or if there's an agreement at the OECD, will Congress be willing to enact whatever deal comes out of those negotiations? And I think that's very much an open question at this stage. Michael, any final thoughts on the interaction between BEPS 2.0 and Tax Reform 2.0? Yeah, I think one thing that's worth remembering is that the, the U.S. Congress generally does not just adopt whatever comes out of the OECD verbatim, right? So we saw the U.S. adopt the OECD recommendations on limiting interest expense in the changes to 163J and the anti-hybrids rules in Section 267 Cap A. But Congress did not just adopt what was in the OECD recommendations. It put, you know, a U.S. gloss on them. And I think that's likely going to happen again here, that if Congress enacts changes to guilty and the beat or the shield replaces the beat with the shield, they may not look exactly like the rules that are set forth in Pillar 2 and the OECD agreements. And so I think the one big question is going to be, do the rules that come out of Congress play nicely with the rules that other countries implement in accordance with the OECD agreements? And I think that's going to be one of the key issues that the taxpayers are going to have to wrestle with as we move forward here. Michael and Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe the most important thing I've taken away from this episode is the close connection between BEPS 2.0 and Tax Reform 2.0. As Marcus and Michael have made clear, the U.S.'s interest in achieving consensus on Pillar 1 is not only to eliminate DSTs, an objective as bipartisan as apple pie and puppies, but also to help forge a political agreement on Pillar 2. And why should the U.S. care if other countries adopt a minimum tax regime like guilty? The answer to that question appears to lie in the Biden administration's ambitious infrastructure plan. To obtain the requisite funding for that plan, the U.S. must increase the guilty rate. And increasing the guilty rate without implementation of Pillar 2 would raise competitive concerns for U.S. multinationals compared to their foreign pairs, which in turn could lead to an increase in inversion activity like we saw before the TCJA. Will Pillar 2 prevent a, quote, race to the bottom? or stymie healthy tax competition? Your take on that question may depend on which side of the aisle you're sitting. Thank you all for joining us today. 
And please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax as we continue to monitor these and other developments and trends in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. 